Hey everybody, welcome to the Kansas City Business Cast. This is your host, Michael Reisinger from VAS LLC. Hey, I appreciate all of the support that we've received so far early 2024. It's been awesome. We have so many hard chargers coming on this show. Case in point today, I have Emily McIntyre. She is the CEO of Zim Coffee, serial entrepreneur, and working on various other things that she will be telling you about today. Emily, welcome to KCBC. Thank you so much. It's great to be here, Michael. I'm so glad to have you. So just to kind of give everybody like a background, when we met, it was through Instagram and uh, we both kind of did the research on each other and we're like, yeah, you know what? I should have you come on this show. Um, So I know today we'll be talking to, you know, business owners, people who are thinking about selling their business, people who, you know, are in a tough spot. We'll kind of go in any direction you want, but um, just so excited to have you here. Thank you so much. Yeah, I was mesmerized by your podcast and Thanks. love what you're doing. Impressed by how you run it. Uh, yeah, top to bottom. Fantastic. Appreciate that. So um, I guess we should kind of go with, you know, your your origin story. How did you get into business? And, you oh. know, tell me about the, the the coffee stuff. And, you know, you've got some awesome hobbies. You're, you're just, you know, you, you do a lot of things, but how I always, when I'm talking to somebody like you, I'm like, how did you get started? What, what is your origin story, you know, and in your journey? Absolutely. Love to share it because I think if I had had someone as crazy as I am show up in my life when I was 16, it would have changed everything. I was raised in a religious cult and part of what I was taught is that girls should stay home, have babies, be housekeepers, and certainly not get a university education or start businesses or do anything at all interesting (laughs) in my mind. And I didn't leave that setting until I was 23. So it was definitely the formative part of my life. That said, I could not stay in one place. And so at 13, I started my first business and ran one of the largest music studios in Missouri for 10 years. At that time, a lot of stuff happened, and I discovered coffee. Coffee is often talked about as being a third place, if it's retail, a place where you can come and you can be yourself and seen in a public setting. I think of coffee as the urban campfire. It's the thing that pulls us together. It's bigger than we are. Really, any beverage could stand in there. Um, Alcohol certainly could be seen as that, except I would argue that coffee doesn't have the same side effects. Um, Tea in certain cultures, but for many of us here in the Midwest, coffee is essential. Whether it's the pot that never left your grandma's stovetop, or it's driving through and getting a latte from Starbucks or or Dunkin' or whatever you do, It's essential. And so I found a home there and I found a place for all the entrepreneurial busyness and excitement that I had. And I also met my partner, Michael. I love the name. (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) Uh, He of the red beard, who was kind of a coffee god of Kansas City in the early aughts. And we met and started doing coffee business together and started, I think we are on Zem Coffee. I think it's our seventh coffee startup together (laughs) over 15 years. And we've done just about everything together in coffee. We have a daughter, and the three of us have traveled all over the world doing coffee. Not glamorous travel, but real travel to coffee farms in especially Peru and Ethiopia, where we work. And we've worked in import-export, retail, and we've done catering, and we've done consulting on every level, and it's been large and it's been small, and, and everything about it has had that same urban campfire thing. We're brought together by coffee with people we otherwise would not meet. And that, although coffee is not the only thing that I focus on, 
definitely fascinated by business in general, has been a common thread. So I guess you could say that's my origin story. Being surprised in the very best possible way by um, things bigger than I could have pictured, including coffee and the love of my life and business after business after business and great, great people that I get to meet. It's so cool. I um and and for those listening, you know, we're gonna tag all your socials and you have documented your travel on your Instagram as well. And that's something that I remember there's there's just nothing like seeing like you and your husband in Peru in front of bags of coffee beans or with with people, you know. Um, and, and I'm just curious. So, uh, you know, coffee is like a big thing right now. I mean, it's always been a big thing, but, you know, I was talking to somebody the other day about, you know, Starbucks and their market share. And, you know, it's just so much more different now when it comes to, um, you know, people's ability to make coffee and all that. Um, you've, you've, this is your seventh coffee startup. What are the things that you love about, you know, the coffee business and, um, you know, what, what do you wish, what do you know now that you wish you would have known when you got started in coffee? Let's kind of talk about okay, that. Okay, great. Yeah. yeah. I could talk all day about that. So first what I love, and then I'll talk about the industry, uh, which is a little bit stickier of a topic, mm. but what I love about coffee is it's democratizing. It only matters that you love your coffee. That's it. In my opinion, I don't care what you drink. You don't have to defend what you drink to me. And I mean you, anyone listening here, anyone who comes up to me, a lot of people are like, well, I know you have the greatest certification in coffee and like probably what I drink is not okay. But for me, I'd like to take you by the shoulders and say, own what you love because that is coffee. That is the experience of coffee. And that's what I've spent the past 15 years as a professional journalist and as a business owner and as somebody who calls people together to create. But then I would segue from that to talk a bit about some of the problems that I've spent the last 15 years trying to solve. And it's uh, hard to say this, but it's true. Coffee, almost without exception, is a very problematic industry in the sense that still foreign country, foreign uh, companies, most of whom got into what they're doing through some pretty shady stuff, um, they own coffee. So mm. one company owns 60% of Kenyan coffee through various subsidiaries, and they are German. Um, one of the largest commodities companies moving coffee around got started in sugar plantations and slaves. That was their first commodity. Now they trade coffee and beans and a lot of other things along with sugar plantations. Um, and so I've spent the last 15 years tackling these things with a lot of hubris, I would say, uh, on the heels of 2023 and the coffee importing company that I gave everything to closing forcibly due to the ripple effects of a larger bankruptcy that took place in the coffee industry, I can see there was some hubris. I was My partners and I were, were putting ourselves up against an entire industry and having the absolute bravery and possible foolhardiness to say that we're changing how coffee is traded. Wow. And we put our money where our mouth was. But... Coffee's a big business. So you, when it comes to the business model, you either need to be small and boutique and have a niche that really works or scale and accept the consequences. And many, many companies that are social enterprises like mine don't make that leap from small to medium-sized up to larger hmm. without some serious compromises such as consolidation. Sure. 
It's interesting. I could talk again. I could talk all day about that. But just keep in mind that it matters where we buy our coffee. It matters how we buy it because it's produced in the fields. Here in Missouri, we understand that. I grew up surrounded by cornfields and in a garden. I know what it means to put a seed into the ground and to nurture it and to weed it and to feel the sun on my back and then to harvest from that. And a lot of people here are deep, deep in that agriculture world. Sure. This is how coffee is created. It's a seasonal thing. It's easily demolished, The except for the country where I work, Ethiopia, which created, just spontaneously created coffee. Coffee is often being victimized by its setting because it was transplanted to a foreign country. And so it's just a constant, constant battle against um, bugs and against climate change and against all of the many things that can go wrong. And so we need to respect what's in our cup. We need to give it respect. We need to own what we love. And we need to always, always try to seek out suppliers of coffee who we can tell. And it's very difficult to audit this. So a little bit of it is a gut feeling and a little bit of it is asking questions and seeing if people can actually answer that they're doing the right things in coffee. It's it's the minority of people, to be honest. So that was not what you asked me, but there you have it. I, I'll get off my soapbox. <laughs> I, I absolutely love um, that education that I just received. And I don't know that anybody else is going to hear that, um, you know, unless they talk to somebody who has 15 years, seven companies worth of experience, traveling the world, seeing it firsthand. My question to you is with Zem, what's different about Zem? So that's, that's new, right? It and, is. and yeah, you great know, question. how have you guys created that? And, uh, you know, how, how's that going? It's going great. We're almost fully booked for sales for 2024. Um, Zem is the last iteration of many where it's integrated with our Ethiopian export company. And it's a, it's a broker. So we okay. provide quality control services and we put together quality buyers with our Ethiopian side, as well as with qualified suppliers from Ethiopia who need to access that type of buyer. So it's a, it's a service that we're providing. Um, the way that it's different from what I was doing before is import requires enormous amounts of finance. You're purchasing a product, FOB, whatever port it leaves, meaning that um, you own the product once it leaves the port. So for us, that was FOB Djibouti. What is FOB? FOB means free on board. It's what's known as an INCO term. It's an international trade term, and it dictates exactly when the responsibility of a contract is assumed. Okay. This is a really important thing to get right. Um, And then the importing company is responsible for it from Djibouti all the way through until it lands on their customers' doorsteps, which could be up to 18 months sometimes. And so it's a very different model. You're really kind of a fancy banker and logistics company. Um, I'm kind of glad to be out of it, to be honest. So now I'm stepped back in the industry and providing FOB sales to importers and to clients who are able to do that. Right. This is pretty fascinating. There are so many little wrinkles in every industry, and coffee is not the exception. I began as a barista, and then I wrote a lot about, I was a pro journalist, and that's actually the storytelling of coffee is how I got into it. I never had any idea how many ways you could make a living or barely scrape by or do great in coffee and the implications of that to the global supply chain. Just uh, amazing. I love I love that too. What I caught in there was that you can get burned out on the part of an industry. That is quite true. <laughs> and quite the true. fact that there's other industry within that industry. Yes. Um, and, uh, you know, fascinating. I love how you mentioned your writing because I know like you, you mentioned that in our, our previous discussion. 
um, how how is that a, is that a skill that you've always had a love for? Have you always had a talent for writing? How have you developed that over time? I know that plays a huge part in what you're doing now. Um, let, yeah, just talk about that creative expression piece. I'd love to. Actually, <laughs> it's an amazing story. My grandmother um, was a f- was on a farm in Montana, up up near in Cal- like the Flathead Valley area, and she had five kids, very isolated, and she wrote stories, and she printed them off or typed them up. And put them in self-addressed stamped envelopes and sent them to magazines. When my mom was 12 or so, she never published anything. But my mom, about the time I was 12, began to write for magazines. And she succeeded. She went on to write over 800 articles, stories, and poems for a wide variety of publications and published four books. And she's in the process of reinventing herself right now as a romance writer for older women, which is something I could spend this entire podcast gushing about. Can we can we drop her name? What, what's Leslie her? J. Wyatt, total badass. <laughs> also, by the way, works for my companies. So she was my operations manager at my last company and is also at Zem and is such an incredible writer. So I grew up with that and I was homeschooled. So basically all I did in my teen years was play the piano and teach it. Uh, and learn a bunch of other instruments, and write and submit stories. And I was—I knew when I was 16, I wanted to be a professional writer. And I also—I have hundreds of credits to my name, and I've done a lot with that. But it is the communication piece that has driven everything I do. Right. And the glorious, fun, delightful piece of this is my 11, almost 12-year-old daughter is an amazing writer. <laughs> <laughs> Four generations of women, each of us using the ceiling of our mom's ability as our floor. It is all that you could ask for legacy. So writing means everything to me. It is a way of being. It is not just words on a page. It's words on our skin. It is blood and bones and heart and soul. It's what connects us. I write speculative fiction, fantasy and sci-fi. Um, <laughs> I have a so, I We don't have video, but I'm just sitting here like tears are welling up in my eyes because I'm just listening. To you, and I saw that in your notes. Sorry, sorry. Tell me no, about speculative fiction to. and sci-fi. I'm, I'm revising a novel right now called The Bottomless Forest. It was inspired by a beautiful forest I saw that was planted in the communist regime in 1970s in Ethiopia. The forest created this entire story in my brain, and I'm now editing it. But I have a published novelette where. It's illegal to be a spider because you have too many legs. They, people always want to know how much of your work is a reflection of you. That part is straight Emily McIntyre. <laughs> I hate spiders. They freak me out. They terrify me. I had a snake fall asleep in my braid one time, and I didn't mind. Yeah, I was 16. A hair braid? A hair braid. Uh, it was at a natural history museum, and I got so much cred with my 10-year-old boy students when I was a piano teacher, when I would show them that picture. So I don't mind snakes, but spiders are not my thing. So, so the, the, that is for your hatred of spiders. <laughs> They're illegal because they have too many legs. Exactly. Because you don't like spiders. Precisely. <laughs> so you wrote I the story the about one. <laughs> and, and that's the rule in this forest in, the, in the book? Um, yeah, those are two different stories. And I could, I could honestly talk about them all day. Oh, but the it. thread of that for me is the same as the thread of coffee. Being more than we are. What does it look like? How does it feel? And that's that's what drives me always, expansion. Because my youth was constricted, I will always ever be evolving and finding that knife edge of change, that alchemy of life, that taking not enough into more than 
and helping others do that. So that's the common thread between my enterprises and my projects and being on this podcast and talking with you and your wonderful listeners today. Thank you so much. Um, uh, yeah, I've I've gathered that too. And I know we have just hit the tip of the iceberg with your experience, your origin, what you're up to now, what's driving you. Um, you know, when we're talking about the writing piece and your experience with coffee and what you're doing now as well with Fix, Close, Sell, the, um, the podcast, which I have been a huge fan of oh, because you. you've got these, these just bangers of, of episodes, these seven minutes and you're using video on some of them as well. And I can tell now, now you're, you're writing for those, correct? Uh, yeah, it's a mix. Some of them these- are pretty scripted and some of them are loose. And I'm still trying to figure out which is best, but they all come from a, a moment of, you know, free flow. Yeah. And that, and I can tell too. I mean, there's been times where, um, I think it was the, the one I told you about that I really appreciated. I walked it upstairs to my wife, Stephanie on speaker. And I was like, listen to this. Can you believe I'm going to get to interview her next week? You know, it was like, because you're putting your heart out there. Um, and, and I think that, you know, the fact that you, through all you've been, you've maintained this sort of tenacity for being creative and expressive. Um, it's like you're inviting other people into mm-hmm. like your journey. You can tell me why and how. When when did you decide you were going to start sharing your experiences and you're going to put them out there? Have you has that been natural to you? Did you have to learn how to do that? Because that's one of those things where people like I think a lot of people want to do some of the things that you've done, but they might have a fear right. of judgment or insecurity Huge. or when you're talking about the ceiling of what people think they can do and that's the thing. Like the world is a dream killer, and people oh, people so can be dream killers. But um, <laughs> to because I have this habit on the show, you probably gathers by now. I start to ask a question, and I ask like four more. But well, that's what it's about, right? Whatever, yeah. Whatever, whatever stood out in what I asked you. Oh, with <laughs> what are your great thoughts? pleasure. Yeah. Fear is the mind killer. Another speculative fiction quote, not mine. Thank you, Frank Herbert. That's right. Fear is the mind killer. It is the little death. I am constantly facing fear. And I've come to see that when I'm afraid, and I'm not afraid through anxiety, which is a completely different thing. And I have a lot of anxiety (laughs) that I manage very, very carefully. And sometimes it manages me. So setting aside anxiety, which is a different thing. Fear is usually an indication that you're on the right track. Hmm. Because what are you afraid of? I can tell you at this moment what I'm afraid of. I'm afraid that Shifting businesses is going to really hamper taking care of my family financially. Very afraid of that. More than that, even, because I trust my ability to go out and get a job or get consulting clients if I need to do that or whatever, I am afraid that what I'm doing isn't going to mean anything to other people. And I'm putting myself out there for nothing. Vulnerability is terrifying, but it's a weapon. I've been in so many boardrooms where I was the only woman and I was the only person able and willing to take the emotional hits of being honest. Being able to take those hits, knowing that I have the resources internally, hard won, to self-regulate and manage what might come from the pain of that vulnerability. It makes me honestly like a goddess in armor. There's nothing that can hurt me. Sure, it hurts me. I'll be fine. I get stronger from everything that harms me. Maybe it takes me longer sometimes. But when 
my investor got tired of not being able to puppet me as the CEO of my company and tried to kick me out, tried to get around me on the board, tried to bribe my co-founders, tried every single trick he could for a two-year period to get me out of my own company. He tried to call a vote to declare me incompetent. He tried to sue me. I mean, he tried everything. All that did was make me stronger. I knew I was right. I had a, I have an issue with conflict, and so it allowed me to work on that. Mm. And ultimately, I bought him out and became the majority shareholder of my own company. And I haven't talked to him since, which is fantastic. That's the kind of thing we get to do when we don't let fear keep us from doing the thing, whatever that is. And we have to start somewhere. So for me, I was a performer. I was a music uh, performer. I was a classical pianist. And frankly, Michael, I love being on the stage in a self-indulgent and almost <laughs> painful to admit way. I absolutely love being the center of attention and having the spotlight. <laughs> but here's the thing I know about myself. I don't just like to do it for me. I am a conduit. I can feel the power of connecting with other people and being able to put into words something that's there. We all feel it. But how do we get there? That thing is what drives me. That's why I like to be vulnerable. That's why I like to share. That's why, um, even though sometimes it's painful to me to admit my own uh, cringe factor, as Judy Holler says, I genuinely embrace every iteration of what I am becoming. And I hope it helps. I have a lot of insecurity about it. But as I approach 40, as I face some very large life changes, including coming back to my hometown of Kansas City, yay, KC. I am determined to not, in a new way, not let that fear hold me back and to talk about it too, because we're all afraid. Absolutely. I would ask you what you're afraid of, but you may not want to share. I don't want to put yeah, you on the spot. No, I mean, it's, I'm, <clears throat> I appreciate you asking because there's a lot of, a lot of the similar things. I mean, you you're know? starting a business right now. You've I, got a lot going on. I am on. an eight pound, six ounce baby business coach and podcaster. Oh. And I, a lot of the same things drive, drive that too. Um, I would say, you know, when you said, I, I can't remember how you put it. Um, you said, I fear not changing or staying the same. Is that what you said? I do fear that a lot. So that's my greatest fear. That's one of my core values or immutable laws. I call them immutable laws. I get them from Mike Michalowicz, um, pumpkin plan, profit first, all that. But because it's there's this this thing in EOS, you've probably heard, mm -hmm. core values are not aspirational. Right. They're discovered. So you don't get together with all the executives and put a bunch of words of the things you think you are. You actually have to talk about the values. And one of those things is I fear the status quo so much. And it's funny because like I'm a former musician. I'm a former metal musician. When you said fear is the mind killer, I was thinking of Burton C. Bell from Fear Factory <laughs> and D the D-Manufacture album. I was quoting Dune. <laughs> and, yeah, exactly. And Dune, oh my gosh. But you know, the fear is the mind killer thing. I mean, my band, we actually used that clip Did on one really? of our songs. Yeah, back in the day. I hear that. And um, I'll, I'll send you the links Please, and stuff. Um, but you know, the whole thing of fear, I mean, I have learned in my life, I need to lean into it. Because um, on the other side of that is who I'm meant to be. You know what I mean? And like, it's it's just what what's sad is I think it was uh, Norman Vincent Peale, Power of Positive Thinking. He starts off the book. He says, drive by a graveyard. Mm. Look at all the tombstones. How many of those people do you think would just ask for one more day 
to, to be positive or embrace life. How many of those people went to their grave just doing things they, they didn't like? Or what's the Chesterton quote? Most, most men live lives of quiet, quiet desperation. desperation. Yeah. So like, I feel like that's the thing, like with me, I mean, you know, my origin story, like I was laid off in March and, you know, because I found so many helpful entrepreneurs like yourself, like people like you are exactly why I started this show. Because when I talk to folks that are doing business for themselves, they're the ones that are like, hey, man, I know there's not a bulletproof uh, blueprint for this. Hey, man, get ready to fall on your face a bunch. You just oh got to keep getting up. That is the thing and so, about entrepreneurship. To close up my fear. Yeah, that's that's very much. But yeah, about entrepreneurship. Hit me. Well, thanks for sharing. Appreciate that. Yeah. Success and failure. I'm obsessed with those right now. I am talking about how they're linked. This is something that occurred to me as I navigated the greatest public failure of my life (laughs) this year. Now, I've had other failures and some of them were public, but because the company I had built, Catalyst Trade, a really, really special Ethiopian coffee importer, we never made a single decision that didn't actually take into account all of our stakeholders, their best interests. It was a remarkable company. It was storytelling based. Uh, A lot of that was me, most of it. And it was just beautiful, really painful to see that die through very little fault of our own. There were a couple of points where we were overly optimistic, can certainly point back and say, wow, we shouldn't have taken on this expensive build out right then. We should have waited another year. But that didn't make or break the situation. Similarly, maybe in 2022, we should have held back a little bit on inventory purchasing, but even that would not have saved us because what happened to the company was outside of our control. And what got me is when I was bringing more charisma and more knowledge and more um, integrity and more, honestly, to buy into, to to gatekeepers and getting no's instead of yeses. Mm. And it was the economy. It was everything shifting after Silicon Valley Bank failed. It was the the great catastrophe of 2023 for small businesses in the United States and beyond. It was the fact that our cost of goods doubled in 18 months. And I got lucky because David Griswold, who had recently sold Sustainable Harvest, which, you know, if my company was cool, Sustainable was cool times 20, and had been around a lot longer and had just done so much good. They had just been purchased by a large company, and he had time to sit down with me. And I spilled out everything that was happening, the great clusterfuck, excuse me. Do you want to excise that? <laughs> no, not at <laughs> okay, all. You cool. can say whatever you want. Well, nice to I hear. I do not bleep. Excellent. Yep. Okay, we're good. So the great, <laughs> I'm going to say it again, the glorious clusterfuck of my business. And he just looked at me and he said, you can win at this. And I'm totally paraphrasing, David. (laughs) I'm paraphrasing what you told me. But you told me that I could come out of this doing better than I'd come into it if I kept my head on straight. And if I didn't take this success or this failure personally. Like many, I am extremely performance-oriented. And it is excruciating to fail. Especially the shame, the the public exposure not knowing what to tell people, having many employees who, who need a lot more certainty than they can get. Being the CEO or the leader or the founder of a business in crisis is something that you cannot understand unless you've done it or you're doing it. There is nowhere to go for solidarity. It is lonely. It is desolate. And usually you don't know where to turn for the resources that you need. And I did this. 
all of 2023, basically, into October when we called the dissolution. I had a moment of clarity on a uh, mountaintop, a beautiful coffee farm in Peru, high, high altitude, looking across the valley at all of this beautiful agriculture, the sun on my face, coffee trees around me, and I realized I can continue, but the business can't. It's time. So shortly thereafter, we declared our dissolution, and we're doing a liquidation sale as we speak at the beginning of uh, 2024. But where I'm going with this is I've gotten the chance to learn up close and personal how success and failure are intertwined. I can look back and I can see the seeds of the failure, and mm. at the time I thought they were success, and vice versa. I am putting forth the concept to the world, and I'd love your feedback, Michael, because it's just out of my head. <laughs> sure, <laughs> To absolutely. God's ears, as they say. Yeah. I think success and failure look almost identical. And the only difference between them is that there's some kind of a tipping point where the external factors show one or the other. And the jury starts to read its verdict. So that, that is a, that is a um, in the matrix, that's, that's the red pill right. to swallow. Okay. Because I, I, I Just saw you watch talk that about with my that. 12 year old, by the way. Oh for the my first gosh. Time. I think I was 12 when I saw it. My what grandmother a mind blow. took Your me to see it. Your grandma is a oh, yeah. badass. Oh, she was. She let me listen to Metallica in the car and all that stuff. <laughs> um, Anyway, so, red pill. But yeah, that so that is one of those things. I want to ask you, I want to not just a friendly challenge on yeah. that. You said for let me know if I'm misphrasing it. Identical. Success and failure are identical. Yep. So how is failure identical to success? Well, let's take it in the context of business. Of business. Got we it. could go to the personal. I'm always happy to, to have a confluence of both, but I want to talk about business. What are characteristics of failure? Often leverage, lots of debt. The business is propped up by money that is not from customers. Well, that's that's also a quality of success, is it not? Yes. Because a successful business must have cash that's to scale. Right. And there's always a valley of death. And those de valleys of death can come more frequently as you scale faster, where your cash needs accelerate past what you have, even if you have a successful business. My business was growing 40 to 80% year over year. Not only were we undercapitalized to begin with, but there was no way for us to scale with our own funds. Success in that business looks like not having it fall, uh, you know, everything hit the fan. And failure looks like everything hitting the fan. But the, the things leading up to it are exactly the same. So there's that. Um, I would argue that overextension is another one of those things. We were constantly doing that thing that you have to do when you're a business owner. You see a vision and you make it happen. And in between seeing the vision and realizing it are countless moments where you're making shit up. And if you can do it in an authentic way, which is that you don't lie to people, but you still have to stand up, then it often works. But just a single hair's breadth deviation of outcomes could force that into failure and exposure. Elizabeth Holmes was doing nothing more than other Silicon Valley founders do. Unfortunately, the whole structure fell apart before any of the claims that were made could be validated. Is she from Theranos? Yes. Okay, got it. All Which right. I'm fascinated by as a side note, because it's rare to see a woman who is in the same position, that dynamic, making that type of claims. And then, of course, we have the public witch hunt of what happens when you have a prominent woman who shows her flaws. I'm not defending Elizabeth, 
but I'm fascinated by her and mesmerized by her and would love to interview her. Anyway, um, so those are two qualities, leverage Makes sense. and exposure um, or extension. And then I would also argue that pretty much the way you build a business for success is how you set it up for failure. Because you are always gambling with the future. I had to hire six months at a minimum out from when I actually needed someone because my team were so skilled and qualified. It took a long time to get someone up to speed, really more like two years. But six months out, I would pinpoint, I think I'm going to need another salesperson. Let me recruit them. Right. And by the way, my magic hiring method, <laughs> which I have Tell us your ways. <laughs> well, it's extremely <laughs> anal retentive. I have an 80-line <laughs> spreadsheet that I use to quantify the soft and hard skills and qualities oh, of, char- of um, candidates. And I haven't ever made a bad hire with that. In fact, I've made some spectacular hires. Although no matter how great your hires are, as a side, it can't save your business. Right. <laughs> Single-handedly. Right. Um, so, you know, you're looking ahead six months. You're looking ahead 12 months. We had to buy coffee up to 18 months before it was needed. How are you supposed to gamble like that? How do you have enough information? When almost, I would venture a guess that 90% of the factors were outside of our control at Catalyst Trade. Right. The grit, the hard work, the vision, the charisma, and the risk exposure that we were willing to take was what we could own. And the rest of it was from outside. So those are the same things. And then I would lastly say, and this is a shout out to the wonderful Morgan Housel of the Psychology of Money. If you're not familiar with that, I highly not. recommend it. Um, personal finance stuff, but I love what he writes. And one of the things he points out is that luck and risk are basically the same thing. It's just that one's winning and one's losing. So if the statistics are against us, which they are. Why do we think that we're going to be on the winning side of the statistics? Because we're entrepreneurs and optimism is everything that we are. Straight up delusion. If we paid attention to the statistics, we'd never try something and the world would decay. We are responsible for innovation and we're the ones on whose backs are built societies, empires, and our pain and our willingness to give everything we are for an undefined sometimes or difficult to define goal that we have a high chance of not reaching, it's often taken for granted. This reminds me, everything you said, thank you for answering my challenge as well. I love you explaining that. Um, Annie Duke, Thinking in Bets. Oh, yes. So her whole thing is every time you make a decision, you say yes to one thing you're saying to no to every every other thing so all the possible futures of saying no or you as a business owner you know it's not just yes and no and maybe right it's yes it's heck yes it's hell yes Mm -hmm. it's no it's hell no it's absolutely not (laughs) and it's like a spectrum it is nothing is black and white you know um You looked like you wanted to say something there. Well, when you said that, of course, my brain went from business to speculative fiction. To me, they're very entwined. Listen, I mean, you're making fantasy What is speculative fiction? Speculative fiction is when you make shit up. Okay. And if you do it well, your reader is sucked into your world and can't even think about theirs for a little while. Okay. (laughs) Speculative fiction saved me, I think. And I write so much of it, probably a million words. I have six novels I haven't published, and I'm currently working on getting there with one of them. But where I was going with that is bifurcating futures. 
at end, there are there's so much literature and so many movies about this. But just, you know, think about a decision tree for a moment. And you've got this point of decision, yes or no. And it's a yes or a no, no matter what you do. And when you say yes, all these other worlds that you might have created, do they die or do they just exist in another reality? I prefer the other reality because it makes me feel a little bit less FOMO. Fear of missing out. Very much, yes. Um, which was something that I confronted during a very deep read recently of a book called 4,000 Weeks, highly recommend, which is on the surface about time management, but in reality, it's about living the approximate amount of time we actually have without regretting what we aren't doing. And I reached a moment where I could confront my fear of missing out of every future path that I haven't already had, and a lot of them are gone. I'm never getting into Harvard now. <laughs> Let's be honest, I never was because I didn't get set up for that and I didn't go that path. But I've had that in the back of my brain forever. Actually, it's not just Harvard, it's any Ivy League. So it's just a, it's a, it's a academic fantasy, which will never come true now. Um, and so many other things. I Like being a digital nomad. I've basically done that, but I haven't done the thing that all the dudes were doing during like last decade where they just take a backpack and they go work from Thailand, which has got some issues, let's be honest, but it's so wonderful, right? I'm a, I have Wanderlust. Anyway, I have chosen to invest in certain things and I'm turning 39 on February 11th and I will not have 39 more years. I mean, I may have 39 more years, but the 39 I've passed, they're gone. The decisions I made are set in this reality, at least. The thing is, I don't regret a damn one of them. I married the right person. I fell in love to the, with the right person. I started businesses I had to start, and I quit stuff I had to quit. I had a child, and she's spectacular. I gave, I lost my home because I believed so much in the business that, that it, it guaranteed. How could I regret that? I'm just lucky that I have time to rebuild. I don't care. I don't give a shit about that stuff. I want to live fully. And entrepreneurism is the avenue to that. Entrepreneurism is the gate to living a life that's real, that counts, because you get to choose what you do. And at the end of the day, even though there are factors outside of your control, what you do is within your control. And it is glorious. It's agency, it's opportunity, it's expansion. Vive love entrepreneur. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Um, it just sometimes I get in these moments with the podcast where, you know, somebody says something and I'm like, how do I, how do I follow that up? Um, I, I'm just, I, I think we've really set the stage here for what you're doing with fix, close, sell. Good point. So, um, tell me about the, the sort of, uh, beginning of that and what you plan to do with it in 2024. So, so excited, especially when I think I told you, I found out that like, you know, your business can have a certain, you know, amount of revenue per year, but it can be valued at so much more. Right, right. And there were people that were actually like, I need to exit the business. And so that was a thing that I learned as an entrepreneur yeah, that there's got to be exit planning. So when I met you and the fact that you're local, you're uh. here, you can. <laughs> I'm I, so here, I Michael. Know you can, I'm so Casey. You, I mean, you're Casey AF, right? Basically, <laughs> um, yeah. Like you can help people nationwide, but the fact that you're here now yeah. and we've got like this concentration of successful businesses in the city, I just, again, I'll stop there. Tell me about Fix Close Cell. Thank Tell you. Us Thanks all about for bringing it. us back around to this. Oh, absolutely. Look, as I said earlier, when your business is struggling and, you know, that can look like a lot of different things. 
You're alone. You need help. You're, you don't have solidarity. Even your partners can't understand. If you're in the driver's seat, then you're the only one who sees everything. You're the only one who can architect the future. Everybody else, it happens to. You have to happen to it. That is a lonely, a painful, and an exhausting position to be in if you're not winning. And winning and losing, as I've said, are really close to each other. One year ago, I was winning in my business. We were closing our $4 million year. I had just hired the dream team. We had expanded into three countries total. We were kicking ass and taking names. People were attracted. They were offering us business. I mean, it was amazing, right? One year later, that business is in dissolution. Very little changed. I am a better leader than I was a year ago because of what I've been through. It wasn't me, although I take responsibility for my own choices. So as a business owner, what I needed was solidarity and somebody to offer me options. And here's the thing that Fix, Close, Sell is all about. Fix, Close, Sell is meant to help you get clarity as a business owner because clarity is the missing piece. You can execute the fuck out of life. You don't need anybody to tell you what to do. You need to know what is the decision point and what am I going to decide is next here. And so that is what Fix, Close, Sell is about. I created a matrix. It's really just a flow chart. It's not that special. It's meant to be simple. That allows me to sit with people or people can do it themselves. A lot of people like to do this themselves. But again, since loneliness is a thing, Fix, Close, Sell is me working with people, either in groups or individually, and saying, let's talk about your business. Let's just assume, you know, you're, you're here because it's not glorious right now. So what is it? Are you not bringing in enough money? Is cash flow tight? Or are you struggling with your employees? Are you burnt out? Or has the environment shifted and your business is no longer quite as relevant as it was? Or you see obsolescence coming down the pipe and you're not sure if you have the resources to get there to fix that. So whatever the problem is, that's the first piece is just identifying it. And at that stage, it's a really simple matrix for decision making. You have a business that's not a finely honed machine that's just chewing out cash and making your life a better life, right? So like a lot of business owners right now, this time in our cycles of ec economy in the United States, are you going to fix it? Are you going to close it? Are you going to sell it? And if so, what are your options for all three? Fixing requires both vision and resources. It requires a strategy and the resources to deploy to make that strategy happen. And so a lot of that question is around figuring out what a fixed business looks like, which is basic business planning and strategy and crisis management and just taking what is and then architecting a bridge to what should be and then seeing how much that bridge is going to cost. But it doesn't end there because it's not just about how expensive the bridge is. It's about whether you as an entrepreneur can afford to buy that bridge. <laughs> and maybe on paper you can. But do you have the sole material left to do that? Right. Maybe you don't. And in that case, let's move to your next two options. Or maybe you're just bored with the business. I get bored with my businesses, honestly. I really do. I quit things easily, which is one of my downsides and one of my upsides. And I, I have to be careful. I don't just burn things down because I'm bored with them. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I need people in my life, and they do calling me out on that. Um, but sometimes people are the other way around. They'll just trudge and they need somebody to say, hey, are you actually enjoying yourself? Do you know what your options are? You have other options. 
it could be painless to close this thing down. And then look what's on the other side. So that moves us to our closer sell question if we're not going to fix it. And I think a lot of people want to know how much money can I get for my business, right? And and here's the sad Especially truth. if they don't like it. Right, very much. I want out. How much can I get for it? The unfortunate truth is that most businesses in the small to medium enterprise range, um, the gut number that an owner may want to compensate them for everything they've put into the business is going to be difficult to justify with a buyer. That said, as you referred to business multiples and ways of stacking up how your business is valued, you can architect a better sale price. It takes a little time sometimes, and there are actually firms that specialize in this. Um, but knowing what you need to do to get there is really important. And then you have the same question that you did about fixing, because honestly, a fixed business is one that's easy to sell, right? Right, right. <laughs> I'm saying this is a simple decision. Um, do you want to get it there or not? And can you? If all of that is not possible, for whatever reason, it's simple. Close it down. And I would like to quote the great Horowitz. If you have to eat shit, don't nibble. That got me through this year. If it's going to suck, do it fast. Do it clearly. Fire the person if you have to with sympathy and compassion and give them a review or give them a recommendation for their next job. Do not keep them on payroll until you don't have a choice. If you have to close the business, then close the damn business. It isn't going to be the end of your life. You are going to have an amazing next chapter, whatever it is. But you're not going to see that next chapter till you close this one. And I'm speaking from major personal experience right now. <laughs> once I closed, once I sent out the notifications to the right people that I was closing Catalyst Trade, and once I enacted the move cross-country from Portland, Oregon, where I'd lived for the last 10 years with my partner to Kansas City, and began a new life chapter, my stress levels went from about 11 out of 10 down to, I mean, my daily right now is about a 1 to 4 out of 10. That is, that is life-changing. Now, I've got some catching up to do from 15 years of, or however many years it's been of, of just, you know, startup mode. But that's my point to, to business owners. There is, a, there is a beyond this for you. You are not trapped here, even if you feel trapped. And sometimes it's as simple as getting a moment of clarity that shows you what the next step is. It can be that simple. And clarity is something you know in your body and in your mind. It's simple. It's easy to enact. And that's the point of fix, close, sell. So I speak about this. I'm beginning to do a lot more speaking. Um, 2024, I want to get on stages and talk about success and failure and fix, close, sell. And because I think it's really, really needed. And then consulting. I'm doing one-on-one -on -one consulting and group coaching as well for this, for people who need help getting that moment of clarity and then maybe figuring out what the strategic steps are to execute. So thank you for asking me. Yeah. That is Fix, Close, Sell. I created it while I was in the trenches in a Fix, Close, Sell moment that resulted in a close. Maybe my next one will be a sell or a fix. I've done both in the past. All three are great options. Love it. Um, I I did notice that you were you you've started um, looking into keynote speaking, and you are an observer. You know, like how how you said I, I'm I'm in 2024. I want to speak on some stages. Yeah. What does that look like? Well, how you do asked you do me that? at the beginning of the interview oh, how long I've been I? wanting to to share my story. Oh right, you know? right. And I talked more about the mechanics of sharing the story and its right. effect. But the truth is, as I said, I absolutely love the spotlight because I think that's where the magic happens. It's not about me. I'm just a vessel. I'm a very delighted 
hardworking, courageous, and charismatic vessel. And I'm here to bring the energy in the room forward. So honestly, Michael, talking about fear, this is it for me. For years, I've known that I want to spend my 40s writing books and speaking on stages about this stuff. And I have been too afraid to lean into it. There's so much fear of rejection. I know because I know from experience that when I get in a room and I speak with others or around others or to them, magic happens. But somehow that fear of rejection is so pressing that it's physical for me. (laughs) So 2024, I'm just refusing to pay attention to the fear. And I'm announcing to the world, I want to learn how to be a keynote speaker. I'm going to keep consulting on these things because I want to learn from you. You need to learn from me. Together, we will find the next upward momentum in our markets. We will not always be in this challenging economic moment where we have business bankruptcies that are up so much from last year. We will absolutely be swimming in opportunities again soon. Let's be ready. So, so awesome. And I love how you just announced that here on this podcast too. my first announcement of that. And I'm a bit aflutter. I love that. I love that. I absolutely love that. Um, You know, one thing that we haven't talked about that I feel like is probably a major component too is, you know, the role that Michael has played. Oh my gosh. And then I'm sorry, your daughter's name. Her name is Era. Era. Yeah. Um, You know, as a family, you know, going through this and Michael and you have been business partners for nearly 15 years, nearly 15 years. And you met in the coffee industry and all that. How is that dynamic? Cause that's one of those things. Like, I feel like, um, when I've had people on the show and I've actually got, we've got our first husband and wife team coming on here, um, soon, but I'm always curious about that. Cause I know like with my journey with my wife, my wife has been badass entrepreneur, like for since forever, built her practice during the pandemic and all that. And then it just took me forever to come along. You know, I didn't understand it. Um, But to have, you know, your husband as your business partner and, you know, what is that dynamic like? Um, How has that helped you too? And and I want to also talk to you about your networking as well. Oh, okay. I'd um, love to on both fronts. But I, I can't pay enough homage to the glorious nature of the relationship between Michael and me. And I'm the one that likes to get up and talk. So I get a lot of the attention. Michael is a master at his craft and he carries a weight of knowledge and wisdom that in our industry in particular, just has people following him. Plus he's got a big old beard And for a long time, coffee was really just kind of crushing on dudes with beards. And so I always joked that if I made his face and beard our brand, then all the dudes (laughs) would come along. They did anyway. Bless their hearts. I love them. Um, We're not quite so dude-oriented in the industry anymore. So I think that the time for that branding, which he would have wholeheartedly refused, is past. Um, But Michael is – he's a craftsman and I'm a vision – and a visionary. And I'm a visionary and a manager. So if we were to go back to the old e-myth classifications, that's who we are. And so we're really complementary. But here's the crazy thing. We were doing businesses together for years before we figured out that I needed to be in charge, not him. Wow. (laughs) It was 2017, and we met in 2008. Okay. And we started our first business together in 2009, a coffee catering business here in Kansas City, which, by the way, we're thinking about reviving. Whoa. Coffee catering was so, so much cool. fun. Did our last gig when we were eight and a half week, uh, months pregnant with our daughter and closed the business. But I think we might bring it back. Anyway, 
Michael's the craftsman, and he is so, so good at process and at saying, you know, here it's messy. We work in a messy part of the industry. Ethiopia as a country is very messy to work in, and we're very dedicated to it, but that does not make it easier. And then when you work in, in a product like that and you refuse to cut corners, it's just very messy. And he navigates that with so much weight. It's amazing. Um, but anyway, I lead the projects, and he does the sourcing. And that works for us. We figured it out in 2017, and our fates changed for the better. So much so. Um, so that's part of it, is we know what we're good at. We encourage each other a lot. We do have moments where we are very much not appreciating the other person's perspective. We can get really frustrated at each other. But over the years, we've gotten really good at resolving that. And we can do it in real time now. Like yesterday, he told me he needed something. I was like, you know, that's not really my problem. But you should probably make sure that this information is answered. And he was like, no, I think I don't really want anything more to do with it. Let's just get it done. And I was like, no, but you need more information. We had a little fight and then we laughed. Point, counterpoint. <laughs> exactly. And we laughed because it was, we've been doing this for so long. It's like, relax, honey. Oh, I've already man. had our argument. <laughs> that is so um, it's, insightful. It's just, it's like we, we now trust each other more than anyone. An uh, old landlord who I really respect used to say partners are for dancing. And this was after he'd been through multiple businesses with partners. And Michael and I feel the same way. We trust each other implicitly. I have only got three business partners who at this moment I would do another business with. And those are Michael, my partner, Zalalim, my Ethiopian co-founder for all the Ethiopian businesses and Zem, and then a past co-founder named Tyler Tate from a, a coffee subscription company called Crema.co. It was really fun. We were a 500 startups um, accelerator batch, and it was great. So I'm rambling. Um, nope, yep. Partnership with, with, with married partners, yeah. it is a touchy subject. A lot of people that I talk to are, you can see the tension. And I've known people to tell me that their marriage is what tanked their business mm. or vice versa. <laughs> and that's so hard. Um, but we've both gotten lucky because we are so madly in love with each other. And I think that our hard work in the relationship and in the businesses has paid off. It works fantastically. So right. I run the businesses. Um, I lead the decision-making. That is something I'm really good at, getting clarity for myself and for groups of people. Michael brings the, the uh, process and an understanding of how things can happen. And then we have different attention spans, too. Right. I always have to have a side project or two going. He needs to kind of focus on one thing, and then he'll have the back of his brain working on another one. Um, so as serial entrepreneurs, that's important to deal with. Lastly, on the topic of family, our daughter, as you mentioned, so important. Era is our motivation. We were not in business when we discovered unexpectedly that we were going to have a child, um, which was not something that we had set ourselves up for or were ready for, but it was a gift we embraced. And we suddenly knew that this little alien, we called her little Laylee or little alien, um, needed more than what we had. And it wasn't about material goods. It was about horizon. She needed a horizon. Everything that we have done, everything I have done is to broaden that horizon for her. And of course, for myself. So the three of us are more comfortable almost living out of our suitcases than we are out of our bedrooms. <laughs> We've lived all over the world together. We spent six months living in Ethiopia when she was four and five, uh, turned five. And, um, she inspires me every day so remarkably. 
She's going to do incredible things, what, but they're not going to be like ours. They'll be different. It's so awesome that she's gotten to have that upbringing as well. It was really important to living us. Living out of a suitcase. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> you know, I'm, I'm always so curious with people that are just super driven like yourself. And, you know, you've talked about how you've learned so much. You know, what do you do um, in your free time? What are your oh, hobbies? Yeah. How do you, um, you know walk away from the business so you can come back to it whole, you know, I'm, I feel like that's kind of an overused thing these days, but what are, what are some hobbies? What do you, what do you do to, to improve yourself and keep yourself sane sometimes? It's a great question. And I think it's an overused topic because it's so necessary. It's the pendulum swing from hustle culture, which is how I came up. No thanks to Gary V and everybody else to now everybody's saying, Oh, I burnout's a thing. Well, yeah, burnout's a thing. I'm super, I have a fast engine, so that tips toward anxiety if I don't have something to occupy it with. But I also know that I have a limit of how many focused hours I can put in per week. And things go downhill very badly, very fast after that. So I have a mix of very focused work hours, which are fewer than most people would think. Honestly, I use a time tracker and I have only gotten above 30 hours a week once in the last month. Wow. Congratulations. Thank you. But they're such focused hours that they feel like 60. <laughs> like wow. at the end of the day, I'm just, I'm wrecked. I'm like, what did I do? Only six hours? It felt like 13. How, let, let's hang there for a minute. <laughs> How do you do that? How do you do that with the, um, the, the super focused hours? Is that like eliminating distraction, like keeping the phone away? As best as I can. God damn it. The distractions are the constant, right? Right. But yes. We have so much lost in when we context switch. Um, I do that as much as I can. I try to communicate to the people around me when I need focus time. And I do have some tasks that I can go really deep on and others I have to force myself to do. Email these days, I'm so over it that I just have to. It is so painful to me to sit down and look at emails. So I have to discipline myself to do that. But if it's a creative project, I can go a lot deeper. Um, and the time passes a lot quicker. Uh, I don't track my time because I'm clocking in and clocking out. I left that life behind over a decade ago, but I do it to keep myself honest because I tend to make myself into a martyr if I don't look at my time, my toggle, my free toggle calculator and see, oh, you know, I only did 27 hours. <laughs> I would have thought I did 60. <laughs> I really ah. would. And humans are prone to that type of overestimation. Right. Um, so I track my time. And I try to be very focused about the outcomes I have to get that day. And then I also try to listen to the little snick, as Lainey Taylor calls it. She's a great fantasy writer. When I can see that things need to go a different direction. Right. And I think I'm most productive when I have something planned and I got the most important stuff out of the way. And then I go do that thing that's really calling me. That said, I also use the Eisenhower matrix a fair amount to um, decide what's most important versus most urgent. Um, I use the Ivy Lee um, protocol a fair amount. Do you know about that one? No, I'm. you're going to send it me is, on a Google I, hunt after this. I will this. send you the links. It's That'd be awesome. This stuff lives online so much. Ivy Lee was a consultant. I want to say in the 1930s for the Bethlehem Steel Corporation, but I'm not strong on details, so please nobody tell me that I got it wrong. I know I probably didn't get that right. Point is, Ivy Lee, consultant. He was brought in to help with productivity. And he spent 15 minutes and taught the executives this little thing and then walked out. And the CEO was like, you, what, what, what did you do? And uh, how much do I owe you? And Ivy Lee said, use it for three months. 
and pay me what you think it's worth. And three months later, Ivy Lee got a humongous fat check. It's so simple. It's kind of like Mark Twain's, you know, eat a frog first every day. Mm, Um, Basically, at the end of your workday, you sit down and I created myself a prettily designed little sheet upon which I put these things. Um, And I did this with my employees too. But you sit down and you jot down your three most important things to get done the next day. And then when you get up, that's all you do. And frankly... To call to another great reference, and I'm going to have to give you all of this, but you probably know this one, Good to Great. Um, Jim, Jim Collins Jim talks Collins. about the 20-mile march. That has become a huge part of my psyche. I About every month, I sit down and I rewrite my 20-mile march page. Right. It could be that I have to do Susan Hyatt's 321 networking strategy, um, or it could be that I have to make a finance ask every day. Whatever most needs to be done, that's at the top of my list. And if that's all I get, then I had a good day. Right. It's like ABC goals, you know, the A goal is the Olympian goal. If, if I, for me, that would be if I got to the end of 2024 and I was actually able to run a half marathon, dear God, Emily would be proud of herself. But the B goal is I really need to, to be able to run a 5K. I never have. It's been a goal for so long. And that's the next thing. The C goal would be, you know, I can run like a mile right now. I'd like to be able to run too. Right. And then depending on the day and how much energy I have, I default to whichever one is best. I know the process that would get me to each of those. And then I gauge my resources and use one of them. So there you go. Bunch of productivity stuff because uh, I'm a productivity addict. Outside of work, um, I do, I'm a lazy martial artist. What kind of martial art? Filipino fit? martial arts usually or Indonesian or Southern Chinese kind of influenced. I spent six and a half years at a wonderful martial arts studio in Portland, Oregon called One With Heart, learning a very particular mix of Kung Fu and Silat. And some escrima, some Filipino martial arts. Ah, that's that's with weapons, right? Yeah, some wonderful rattan. And, oh, I love it. And then I'm actually training with an amazing Kansas City studio right now. They're called Kindred Protective Arts. They're up on Gladstone and uh, in Gladstone. And they're just awesome. They're cheerful. For me, what I needed is a little lower key martial arts studio. Is that and they the cra- are, are they Krav Maga? No, they are Filipino martial arts. Okay. So they're doing, we'll, we'll tag them in the show notes. Oh, yeah, notes. we should. Um, they're doing what's known as nunchaku. They're doing uh, the bow staff. They're doing what my favorite is the, the, the sticks, just two sticks, you know, rattan. Um, the screama sticks? Yeah, screama. That, yeah. Oh, my gosh. We have a lot to talk about, don't That's we? That's for sure. So I like to do martial arts, um, but I like to not obsess about it. And I like to bake. I write a lot. I like to spend time with my friends and family. I am an avid home cocktail maker. And I like to be spontaneous. So I like to just go out and do something and kind of follow my nose as to what that might be. And that that keeps me engaged and, and enterprising. Right. Yeah. If I sit too long, my brain weaponizes against me. And it is anxiety and panic attack city. And there's nothing productive to be done until I can get back to work. <laughs> So I try to stay out of that mode by being pretty engaged in active rest. That's awesome. Um, I guess in closing, is there anything that we didn't talk about today that you wanted to make sure you got out there Hmm. on the interwebs with the podcast? Here's the last thing I would say, which is difficult to pick, frankly. Mentorship is everything in entrepreneurship. I have learned, I have been able to accelerate my learning as an entrepreneur so much more than I normally would have. I believe I compressed 15 years of learning into five as the CEO of Catalyst Trade, because of the mentors I had access to. And most of them were people who I asked for mentorship. I got so lucky. I got mentorship from a guy named Alex Nathan in Portland who owns real estate and was um, just really involved in our business in a great way. 
He's the one who told me I need to get out of my own way and just trust I could do it and go do it. And I did. Uh, mentorship from a guy named Seth Talbot. I mean, just so many people. So I have about 15 mentors, formal or informal, who I constantly am in touch with. And then I try to give back by, by mentoring. So I am bringing on a few informal mentees here in Kansas City. If somebody feels they could benefit from occasionally sitting down and either working with me or talking with me in a structured or an unstructured fashion, at the moment, I have a little availability for that. So that's the thing I want to say. Um, don't be afraid to ask for mentorship as a, as a business owner, especially if you're from, like me, a different kind of a background than the typical entrepreneur. All of us are eager to help you. So come ask. I mean, I bet that you would love to, to do that too, or probably do on a daily basis, offer mentorship and support. I'd I, I have left that door open in Your on emails have been mentoring to it, me, frankly. <laughs> Thank you, <laughs> my friend. You're so organized. Uh, you know, I well, that's the thing is is our history and what we've been through, it makes us better, you know? And so we have to offer that. The and, way I send yeah. emails now is because I've been a terrible email sender Were before. You really? Yeah. Oh, yeah. At, at one point. I don't believe it. I, I mean, you know, well, that's the thing is like, it's like, you know, I found this too, to like be a good dad to my kids. I had to see what it was like when I wasn't kind or whatever. You know what I mean? I yes, mean, you know that as a parent. You need to know the error as well as the correct way. How do we learn? We're human beings. And, you know, when you're talking about the failure and success thing, um, you know, think about emails, right? Like Goodness 2D <laughs> communication. And that's the thing that I learned a long time ago is like, you know, the it, communication's 2D. When it's written, you can't see the face. You can't see my smile. You can't see just the little the little dig if there was some sarcasm and stuff. So, um I, I have so enjoyed speaking with you today. I think we're going to have to do this again. I want to check I'd in with to. you like <laughs> later this year. Like hopefully you've got, you know, a few keynotes down, maybe a TEDx talk in the future. You no, know, <laughs> I was looking at TEDx websites last night. I will just oh admit. Oh my gosh. You're course, calling it, Michael. Of course you were. Well, I mean, and that's the thing too is, you know, when you talk about the vision, it's, you know, you're never going to get there unless you see it first. And it's, it's you know, dead eyes, see no future kind of thing. And, Ooh. you know, uh, that's an arc enemy song, by the way. Oh, that's so <laughs> but, it's, but again, it's from a poem, I think. It was Angela Gossow, their previous vocalist, um, <clears throat> you know, wrote that song. And but the thing about it, and I think this is this is probably accurate to say, is that, you know, the provision is right. like the vision and the mission, you know, how you do it. And that's what you're willing to help business right, exactly. owners with, like, yeah. you know, to make that decision. So, um, 100%. my goodness. Well, this is delightful. I, I want to keep going, but we're done. So, you know, yeah. another time. And we'll my information will be in the show notes. So if you right. think that you need help with your business, please reach out to me. I would love to get involved. I'm in a wonderful position at this moment of transition. And so I'm open to helping. I'm open to new voices. And I'm so excited to be back in Kansas City after 10 years building businesses on the West Coast and in Africa and in Peru. It's amazing to be here. And Michael, thank you for the generous and wonderful podcast interview. Appreciate you so much. Thank you. Everybody, you heard it, okay? Get a hold of Emily now because you know she's she might not be so available in the future. Damn straight. So <laughs> it's a um, window. <laughs> thank you all for listening to the Kansas City Business Cast. Again, we've got Emily's links in the show notes. Please remember to rate, review, subscribe, and most importantly, follow what Emily's doing uh, online. Again, thank you all for listening. We appreciate you. 